Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Intoxicants quite often enable better training, better fighting, and also uh, better killing. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Why do soldiers fight? Maybe it's patriotism. Maybe it's comradeship. Maybe it's fear of their own side. Or maybe it's the drugs. For as long as there have been people, there have been people trying to get high. It's no different in warfare. Fighters have used drugs to make themselves bloodier, stronger, more able to go without sleep. And for all those reasons, the people calling the shots have given them the drugs. Lukasz Kamienski, author of Shooting Up, A History of Drugs and Warfare, joins us to talk about this underreported side of warfare. So, hi Lukasz, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. Do you think you can give us a very brief summary of how drugs are used in war? What are they used for? When we look at the effects of drugs, we'll see that most of them are highly desirable from, for increasing military effectiveness, especially the stimulants help to provide what every military organization has tried to achieve, basically through training. So stimulants enhance performance, uh, they reduce stress, can eliminate hunger, fuel courage, depressants can also induce numbness. So from the military point of view, intoxicants quite often enable better training, better fighting, and also better killing. There are basically few purposes that uh, drugs have been used throughout the centuries in war. And I would say that firstly, it's to keep personal awake and alert, and hence also often alive. Uh, So in short, drugs, stimulants are performance enhancers. Secondly, drugs has also been used to inspire courage and provide relief from the stress of battle. Also, drinking and drugging rituals helped soldiers bond and create trust, and therefore primary group relations, the Shakespearean bond of brothers, if you like. And um, trust and, and those in-group bonds are crucial for group cohesion, morale, motivation, and also good performance. Then something which is very important from the individual 
uh, level, that is to say, individual soldier, intoxicants enabled warriors to cope with the traumas of war, with the horrors of, of, of combat. So drug use was quite often simply a response to hardships and horrors of combat. And finally, something that may often be overlooked, but uh, is quite common and often, drugs were often taken to kill boredom. Soldiers reached for uh, intoxicants because they simply had not much else to do. Uh, let's keep in mind that monotony is one of the features of modern war, particularly vivid, for instance, in Vietnam. There's a passage in an outstanding war memoir by Philip Caputo, a rumor of war, which goes something like that, that nine-tenths of war is waiting around for uh, the remaining one-tenth to happen. So, in sum, drugs uh, have been used for different purposes in order to make units more ready and more effective for combat. On the other hand, there were also some attempts and ideas of using drugs as a weapon of war uh, in a more offensive way. The idea was to either subvert the enemy by supplying drugs to undermine the fighting power and morale both of uh, the enemy troops and um, its uh, society, but also to incapacitate by using a, a kind of non-lethal psychochemical weapons. You said building comradeship. I'm wondering, do you mean... The same thing as a bunch of people in a, I'm thinking of like a Viking, you know, hall where everybody's getting drunk together and having a good time. Is that, is that the kind of bonding that you were talking about? That, that's right. That's right. I mean, you, you, you know better your companions and you can trust them more. And uh, it's a kind of icebreaker as well. So this kind of uh, group rituals that can help people from different backgrounds and different stories uh, come together and form a, a unit, which is important at the very low level of military organization, like platoon, I say. In the ancient world, who used drugs? Was it everyone, if you include, let's say, wine and beer as drugs? Well, hmm, that's a tricky question because we do not know much about the use of intoxicants by airy warriors. There are no records, obviously. Uh, there are only myths, uh, legends, and uh, works of literature. So much of our knowledge can only be speculative. Um, however, there are some clues, okay, that uh, opium and alcohol and toxic mushrooms, uh, some potent herbs, indeed found their way to the pre-modern battlefield. And I guess the, the, the very first reference to the opium poppy in, in Greek literature occurs in, in Homer's epics. There is this passage in the Odyssey describing how grief and sorrow for companions who died in the Trojan War were drowned by or the drink of oblivion. The guess is that it was opium dissolved in wine, kind of mixture that uh, later became to be known as laudanum and was invented uh, by Paracelsus. So in a word, the warriors, the ancient warriors, uh, used intoxicants, but uh, not on the um, exclusive way. I mean, the... Um, those substances were in, in, in common everyday, almost everyday use uh, within the societies. 
and they also found their way to the battlefield. However, depending on the region and society, there were some substances that were perceived as special or divine and uh, were only their use was only limited to the social elites, including the warriors, which was the case, for instance, with coca leaves in the Inca, Inca Empire or toxic mushrooms in the Siberia, but also perhaps in the, uh, in the Nor Nordic countries. Uh, what about the Wehrmacht? The Nazis ran on speed, right? They took a lot of meth. That's right. In fact, the Nazis uh, were those who pioneered the whole scale and, let's say, systematic military doping. So what used to be a kind of chaotic or unorganized uh, becomes a very uh, part of the war machine with the Nazi introduction of methamphetamine. The pill that was uh, in use was called pervitin. It was three milligrams of methamphetamine produced by the Berlin-based pharmaceutical company Temmler & Werke. It was uh, introduced to the market in 1938. And uh, following the initial experiments with pervitin on, 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 on students and also some unauthorized experiments conducted by uh, German soldiers. The pervitin was introduced as uh, a called assault pill. Um, it was highly uh, institutionalized because uh, in April 1940, the army's commander of uh, in chief, Walter von Brauchitsch, issued uh, the so-called stimulant decree, which set up the optimal doses and frequencies of pervitin. And for example, it recommended one tablet of uh, pervitin per day and two tablets at night. Uh, if necessary, another one or two tablets after um, three or four hours. So the, the, the stimulant decree is the very beginning of formal administration of methamphetamine in the German military. The decree is sent out to more than a thousand medical officers. And in fact, between April and December 1939, the Temmler-Werke uh, company supplied the German military with something like 29 million uh, pervitin pills. Uh, many of those tablets were used experimentally during the campaign against Poland in September 1939, which is something that you will not read in history textbooks and uh, the fact that is, which is completely unknown in my home country, Poland. And after, after the drug proved useful, it helped uh, German soldiers keep going for hours and days nonstop. Those decree was introduced and uh, at the peak of Blitzkrieg, in spring 1940, German troops were regularly being issued pervitin during the Blitzkrieg in Europe. Some 35 million pills were consumed. So, yes, in a way, Blitzkrieg was significantly fueled by, by pervitin. It was believed to give soldiers nearly superhuman ability. Uh, and in fact, one can think how was it possible that, uh, for instance, a tank unit could move for two or three days nonstop, or an infantryman could make 
1,600 kilometers a day. The, the army on meth could fight longer with little rest. This is uh, quite well described by by uh, Norman Oller, uh, the German writer, in his recent book, uh, Blitz, uh, on the history of drugs in the, in the Third Reich. Overall, it's, it's estimated that uh, during the Second World War, the German armed forces consumed some 200 million methamphetamine pills. It's an estimate, right? What about the Allies? The Allies, yeah. Uh, the, the Third Reich was the first to introduce this kind of deliberate military doping, but soon Britain, uh, the US, and also Japan followed suit. Uh, and they also began administering uh, methamphetamine, uh, sorry, amphetamines to their troops. It was methamphetamine uh, in Japan and amphetamine in Britain and the United States. So the British soldiers mostly pilots, consumed about 72 million benzodrine amphetamine tablets. Uh, when it comes to the American war effort, it's very difficult to, to say because what we know is the value of government contracts with the drug manufacturer uh, Smith, Klein and French company. Those contracts amounted to almost $900,000 but what we do not know is the government procurement price, which was definitely and certainly much lower than the market one. So the American soldiers used between 2,500 and 500 million benzodrine pills during the Second World War, pills commonly known as bennies. When it comes to Japan, the emperor's army handed out tablets known as uh, nekomoyo, which is to say cat's eyes, uh, and perhaps the most famous amphetamine consumers in uh, the Japanese armed forces were kamikaze, who, departing for their final flight, were not only given a shot of uh, uh, rice wine, uh, sake, but also methamphetamine mixed with powdered green tea tablets known as tokuyuyo. What about side effects? I mean, none of these drugs really are magic, right? That's right. And um, what happened in the war was that the guidances on the use of amphetamines were hardly met. Uh, they were quite liberally dispensed and used. Uh, and of course, there are some repercussions to prolonged and excessive use. Uh, more painful when it comes to methamphetamine, less when it comes to amphetamine, but still. So we've got mood swings and depression. There are can be when um, uh, overdosed uh, uh, this uh, amphetamine psychosis, which includes paranoia, hallucinations, delusional thinking. Um, of course, there are some uh, physical side effects like uh, high blood pressure. And with continual use of amphetamines, the, the physical collapse can come within days. So in a way, the most challenging was the uh, amphetamine hangover. So a, a soldier taking a, a drug was perfectly fit, but after the drug's effects uh, faded away, he had to uh, rest and, and was uh, dysfunctional unless he continued taking the drug, which was quite severe in the opening uh, days of the Blitzkrieg for the German military. Many instances of... Uh, 
undesired effects were recorded, which apparently led the uh, authorities to introduce a more cautious and strict policy on the administration of methamphetamine. All right, well, that covers World War II, uh, but soldiers don't stop using drugs after World War II. I think what, what, what sticks in most people's mind is American drug use during Vietnam, uh, especially more, more downers like heroin, marijuana, that kind of thing. Can you, can you speak to that? I think this is more about in line with the escapism that you were talking about. The use of uh, stimulants didn't end up with uh, the Second World War, and when it comes to uh, the Korean War, the, the Americans continued to push their troops and the administration of uh, dextroamphetamine became commonplace. So unsurprisingly, when we jump to the Vietnam War, we'll see a, a kind of uh, uh, an overall pharmacological war with drugs both prescribed and self-prescribed by soldiers. So apart from uh, stimulants issued by the military, which was basically dextroamphetamine, American soldiers were heavily self-medicating themselves with any intoxicant that uh, they could find. And uh, Vietnam was uh, a real drug paradise. Uh, the most popular intoxicant of war, non-alcoholic intoxicant of war, was uh, marijuana. However, because of the media hype, that generated in back home in the 19, uh, in the late 1960s, the military felt pressure to take some anti-marijuana actions. So the, the story went that we are not winning the war, we are doing uh, not our best because our soldiers are doping. So let's do something with this. The military introduced controls and arrests and uh, confiscations and so on and so on, uh, which didn't result uh, an overall decrease of drug use, but uh, in, a, in soldiers changing the substance. So they moved to heroin, heroin, which um, was very pure, the one available in Vietnam. It was 194, 98% pure. Uh, it was called white snow, and it was apparently uh, produced uh, in the laboratories set up in Vietnam, operated also by the Chinese chemists. The idea was to supply American soldiers with as much heroin as possible, and at the end undermine their uh, fighting capabilities. There's, there are official estimates that um, say that Half of men who uh, did drugs in Vietnam uh, took heroin and opium. Uh, and um, overall, uh, and these are uh, Department of Defense figures, while in 1968, some 50% of soldiers in uh, Vietnam took drugs. In 1973, the year of U.S. withdrawal, they jumped to 70%. And the question is how to explain such a high rate of drug use. And uh, the most reasonable answer is, I guess, that uh, drugs helped soldiers to bear, uh, bear the burden of, of, of the war, cope with uh, stress and trauma and the feeling of the senselessness of, of, of the conflict, which points towards the contextual reasons of uh, heroin use. In fact, the research conducted on the veterans 
back home in the 1970s revealed that most of the soldiers, the, the veterans who used heroin in Vietnam stopped using the drug uh, back home and the overall rate came back to the normal 10% of the population, of the military population. It's interesting that people uh, didn't use it when they came home. Well, wait, wait, wait. well the, the other story, a different story, is the uh, rise of uh, drug use afterwards among those veterans who uh, suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. But it's often the case that they start taking again because they cannot cope with uh, war trauma. There is no psycho, uh, psychotic help and uh, the condition as such is not recognized as, as the medical condition until 1980 as the PTSD. So there is no help. They have to help themselves and so they turn to alcohol and drugs. But uh, there is no direct connection between, you know, being in war and then, you know, being addicted or having a heroin habit. What's going on today? You know, is our modern army still using these drugs? Is it mostly uppers? Uh, what about the Air Force? The modern uh, regular armed forces, it's only the uh, U.S. military uh, that allows for controlled pharmacology-assisted combat or pharmacological management of fatigue. And uh, this practice is limited to pilots only and perhaps special forces. As for the present day, U.S. fighter and bomber pilots embarking on missions that are longer than eight hours for one-man flights or exceeding 12 hours for two-person crews can each time, well, if all required procedures are met and those procedures are quite complicated and, well, uh, prepared, can each time obtain 10 milligrams of dexedrine pills, that is to say, dextramphetamine. I, I don't want to get into the details because, you know, it's uh, it's quite complicated. Uh, it, it's it's uh, only for a special particular mission or operation. Uh, it requires the uh, approval not only from the wing commander, but also from surgeon, etc., uh, etc., Anyway, it's up to the pilots uh, whether they decide to take pill or not. So they, they keep it into the cockpits and it's up to them whether they decide to reach for pharmacological support. Usually, it's the drug is taken after the mission was accomplished on their way back. Let's keep in mind that uh, flight sorties are extremely, can be extremely long, like 30 hours or more and uh, the most risky part of the mission is coming back return and the landing maneuver and uh, that's why the suggestions or guidances are for taking those drugs for taking dextroamphetamines continuously once a pilot decides to take the first pill until the mission is accomplished the pills are known among pilots as go pills They've been quite extensively used during the Gulf War, 1990-1991. It's been reported that 15 or 17 percent uh, of pilots during Operation Desert Storm regularly flew on, on go pills. 
and um, there were some units that most pilots used uh, uh, pharmacological support, which generated kind of anxiety among commanders that those pills may be habit forming and the pilots may be overusing them. There was some media interest. Um, so in 1991, after the Gulf War, the chief of the Air Force introduced the ban on the Go pills and this gap in um, the use of dextroamphetamine by U.S. Air Force lasted until 1996. It was re the, the practice was reintroduced with the beginning of operations during the Balkan War. So overall, historically speaking, the, the practice of using gold pills was very well uh, has been very well established in the U.S. military back to the 1950s and 60s with a very short period of discontinuity in the 1990s. There is another drug that uh, has been introduced in 2003 because you know there is there is this confusion about issuing uh, substances that are co controlled drugs uh, officially dextroamphetamine is a schedule 2 controlled drug so you are not allowed to take it without medical prescription right and um, it might be kind of uneasy for the military to say that what civilian pilots are not allowed to and forbidden, the military pilots are encouraged to do. So the, the military is looking for safer and non-amphetamine stimulant drugs. One of them is uh, modafinil. It's marketed in the U.S. as Provigil and many other different, uh, and under many other different trademarks. It's a uh, it's actually not a new drug because it was discovered in 1970s in France, but it's a new class of drug. It's an algoric uh, a psychostimulant, which means it stimulates without having all these uh, bad side effects, which are usually caused by amphetamine. And by the way, modafinil, it's a, it's a very common lifestyle smart drug in the societies, in the Western societies. 90% of the sale of Provigil is off-label. So as I said, the officially the US military is the only armed force that allows for the use of stimulants. However, we know that the chi Chinese army is reported to introduce its own <clears throat> stimulant. It's known in the West as Night Eagle. And if media reports are to be believed, it uh, it is set to turn Chinese soldiers into night owls and able to stay awake for even up to 72 hours, which is kind of mind-blowing. And uh, there are also some speculations about the Russians. The Russian military is perhaps uh, using uh, nootropics, the drugs that are banned in sports as doping, but uh, have been quite popular in Russia. Actually, uh, at Russian pharmacies, there are plenty of quite easily available nootropics. They've been, um, they, they were um, originally developed for astronauts back in the 1960s and 70s. They were used by the Red Army in the Afghan war back in the 1980s and are perhaps used by Russian special force units today or rapid response units, emergency situations. The, those drugs are uh, under different names, but most popular are pentropyl or metroprot. 
of course, this is unofficial because officially we have no data about the Russian military using any kind of intoxicants so far as the regular forces are concerned because the irregular militants are uh, another story. Do you mean terrorists or do you mean... Yeah, what actually, what do you mean? Non-national, non-regular forces, be it terrorists, insurgents, militias, uh, child soldiers, uh, so on and so forth. It, uh, uh, it appears that the use of intoxicants especially by non-Western irregulars, has become an inherent feature of the phenomenon. And there are plenty of examples. For example, Daesh, the Islamic State, had this substance of choice uh, called Captagon, which is a powerful stimulant known as uh, fentylin. It's after after uh, entering the body and after digestion, it's it splits into amphetamine and a caffeine-like stimulant called theophylline. So it's basically the amphetamine-like stimulant invented in the early 1960s, became a lifestyle drug in the Middle East, but. In the mid-1980s, it was recommended by the World Health Organization to be removed from the prescription sale because of its side effects and uh, habit-forming properties. Yet, it's, it's the main lifestyle drug in the Middle East. So, um, uh, Captagon was reported to be used on, on a very, in a very liberal way by uh, ISIS fighters. The jihadist fighters have been reported to consume it pervasively, which was seen as one of the explanations of their uh, savage and br brutal behavior. It's also known that they've been taking opioid painkillers and hashish as well as cocaine and, and, and heroin. But I would be I would be careful to conclude that it's only in, or it's mainly uh, psychostimulants that make them into fierce fierce fighters. Uh, I, I would say that it's uh, both jihad and psychostimulants, two powerful intoxicants that turn them into murderous and uh, uh, savage fighters. So fueled by Captagon, they, they, they continued fighting, which was astonishing, even after they, they were gravely wounded. So they kept going, if even being seriously injured. And um, this is precisely also what the U.S. Marines experienced in, in the Battle of Fallujah in November 2004. So the insurgents they engaged with were as we now know, heavily doped on amphetamines and cocaine, and they continued fighting despite getting severe, severe injuries. So when the standard firing procedure to aim at the body failed, the Marines were ordered to refocus on headshots, and then the tactics became more successful which reminds these um, guides of, on the methods of fighting zombies, that you can kill a zombie only by destroying its head. Apparently, 
uh, jihadist fighters on uh, Captagon were quite often referred to as zombies. However, let's keep in mind that, you know, the, the experience of fighting with fierce, irregular enemy who is pumped up on drugs is hardly new. When we look back to, to history, we'll see the pirates of the South China Sea, who traditionally dosed themselves with marijuana before attacking European ships, perhaps overriding emotional stress. Uh, when we look at the Anglo-Zulu War in 1879, we see great surprise, great tactical surprise experienced by the British, who didn't expect to encounter extremely determined enemy. The Zulus fought with real fury and fanaticism. Of course, they were traditional belligerent warriors, but what made them truly furious, fearless, was not only tradition, but also pharmacopoeia. Their military doctors or shamans provided them with various herbs to eat, drink, inhale, such as uh, daga, which is the South African uh, um, variety of cannabis. Quite interesting, though, because it has, it has a stimulating effect. Instead of depressing, they had medicated beer, perhaps also consumed a magic mushroom, uh, known as Amanita muscaria or, or, or fly agraric, which is uh, a powerful stimulant. Uh, so the, the pharmacopoeia available for the Zulus was very rich. Back to the present times, the non-Western irregulars, as I said, intox in intoxicants and intoxications seem to have become inherent to terrorism in one way or, or another. And just to give you two further examples, the Chechens, who in September 2009 attacked and seized Russian school in Beslan, were heavy heroin and morphine users. Since the siege lasted for three days, they ran out of supplies, suffered from withdrawal uh, symptoms, and turned extremely, extremely roughless, killing almost 200 children at the end. And another example, the Pakistani Lashe Taiba terrorist who conducted a series of uh, um, attacks in Mumbai in November 2008 were found out to being high on cocaine and steroids. And this perhaps enabled them to hold out against Indian special forces for nearly 60 hours with little food and rest. So in a way, we are experiencing today the enemy who is making use of intoxicants, uh, mostly stimulants, to compensate for, for the lack of uh, better equipment or training. But uh, let's keep in mind that, that this practice shouldn't be surprising because the Western regular militaries have been doing it for, for centuries. Lukasz Kamienski, thank you so much for taking us through this. You went all the way from Vikings to zombies. <laughs> I, I think that's the title of the episode from vikings to zombies, zombies a history of drug use in the military that's great thanks for listening to this week's show if you enjoyed it let the world know by leaving us a review on itunes it helps others to find the show 
or at least that's what they tell us. We're putting transcripts of most shows online at warcollegepodcast.com, and you can reach us on Twitter, we're at war underscore college, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash warcollegepodcast. We'd love to hear from you, so hit us up. War College is me, Jason Fields, and Matthew Galt. We will be back next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.